The Ray Hanania Show is brought to you by the U.S. Arab Radio Network and sponsored by Arab News Newspaper, the Middle East's leading English language publication with print and online editions in Saudi Arabia, Dubai, France, Japan, Pakistan, England, and the United States. Listen to live radio every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern in Detroit, Washington, D.C., New York, and Ontario, Canada. Or watch the live broadcast on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. The Ray Hanania Show is rebroadcast in Chicago at 12 noon on Thursday. For more information on the radio stations, live Facebook broadcast, and podcasts, visit ArabNews.com. And now, here's your host, columnist and U.S. Special Correspondent for Arab News, Ray Hanania. And good afternoon, everybody, and good morning if you're in the Middle East, probably the middle of the night over there. It's Wednesday, May 18th, at least in Chicago and in Washington, D.C., uh, where we're broadcasting live and in Detroit. Uh, on WNZK AM 690, WDMV AM 700 in D.C. And again, tomorrow we're going to be broadcasting on WNZK AM 690 at 7 a.m. on Thursday. And in Chicago, 12 noon on WNWI AM 1080 radio. We're adding more stations as we grow. And I appreciate the support from the U.S. Arab Radio Network, which is our host. And our sponsor, Arab News Newspaper at ArabNews.com. We're broadcasting live also at Facebook.com slash Arab News. And you can listen online at ArabRadio.us. I prefer the radio still, uh, you know, sitting in the car, but that's the only time I listen. We're also going to maybe take some questions later on at 248-557-3300 if you want to call in. But today we got a really important story. We're going to be talking and looking at the recent elections in Lebanon, May 15th. It's been a tumultuous two years for Lebanon. The explosion of August 4th, 2020 took the lives of 218 people, injured 7,000 and left 300,000 homeless. And I'm not sure it's been resolved. It's still being investigated and there's some suspicions and claims as to why it happened, but it had a huge impact on Lebanon and I think on the politics. And then there's the economic crisis that's followed, the uncertain and continued political turmoil all this has brought, and all this has pushed Lebanon into political gr gridlock, a nation that continues to be governed by a confessional or sectarian division of political office. The head of the state is president, the uh, I could go through the whole thing, but I'm going to let my guests do that with us to help us understand all because I don't understand it. And I've been covering the Middle East for years. It's probably one of the most complicated uh, Arab countries in the entire Middle East. With us to help us understand all of this is Gene Abinader, the vice president for policy at the American Task Force on Lebanon. He has decades of experience in public affairs, advocacy international marketing, education and training, and project management in the Arab world. He regularly contributes analysis in a weekly blog hosted by ATFL on current events in Lebanon and the region. Um, I'll tell you, nobody is better to help us uh, than the American Task Force on Lebanon. Gene, we're, it's very, it's, uh, we're really honored to have you on the program uh, today. Thank you for joining and also joining early. We had another guest scheduled. We were going to talk about Michigan politics. Um, but, you know, with 18 candidates running in this one district in Michigan, I kind of think you chickened out a little bit. I don't understand. But in all honesty, I'd rather talk with you and about Lebanon. 
Welcome to the show, Gene. Thank you very much, Ray. It's been quite a while since we've had the opportunity to be together. Uh, from my early days when I was there with MAAA, recruiting members for that organization, then with Jim Zogby and AAI. Uh, but it's uh, very important to have this discussion because so many of our community are Lebanese or married to Lebanese or have been there. And so there's a great deal of emotional, cultural support for Lebanon and changes in Lebanon. Yeah, you, and- mentioned the, you mentioned that it's been a rough two years. Actually, it's been before that. Yeah. The whole collapse started with the big demonstrations back in October 17, 2019. And that's where the real movement of change be- began. And then it was exacerbated by the points that you mentioned, plus COVID. So it's been a real tough time for the Lebanese. And we're really pleased to see the results of the voting by the diaspora Lebanese in response. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting. Uh, I don't know if all the Arab countries do this, but whenever they have elections, the ones that do, um, Lebanon allows its uh, expatriates, about, what, 270,000 around the world to vote in your election. I I think that's phenomenal. I wish the Palestinians would do that. Maybe I'd run for office. (laughs) There you go. You'd probably be elected. I don't know. I wouldn't wouldn't win. Comparatively. Well, I, I think the, the interesting thing is, as you mentioned in your earlier remarks, one of the reasons why uh, Lebanon is able to have these elections, even though they're the political parties that represent different sects, is because it's not an authoritarian regime. You have the strong presence of Hezbollah, of course, but unlike other places, uh, Syria to the east, uh, Egypt to the west, there's a lot more freedom for new entrance into the political system for people to express their opinions. And that's one of the reasons why Lebanon's been a place that's so important to the Arab world is because it's always been a center for discussion, intellectual growing, and for the last 20 years of film industry. Um, so it's been it's been quite a challenge to for the diaspora, many of whom themselves have become refugees since all of this started, uh, to respond in a positive way by getting involved in the election. Let, let's do this just to um, uh, introduce and make sure the people listening know who the American Task Force on Lebanon is. You and I have known each other for years with the AAI, the Arab American Institute. I just saw actually Jim Zogby was in Chicago a couple of days ago for our Arab American Democratic Club. He was one of our uh, keynote speakers. Uh, and I think we were at dinner. He mentioned you and a bunch of other people and just brought back memories because the activism, I think, back in the 70s and 80s and early 90s, I felt was much more cohesive and effective. And I think maybe the more we have, the more diverse our voices become. But t- tell us a little bit about the American Task Force on Lebanon so people know what it does and why it's so influential. It's doing. It's in its thirty-third year of existence now, and it started during the uh, Lebanon Civil War, and the reason being that uh, there were so many voices speaking on behalf of Lebanon, representing different political factions, that it was felt that Lebanese unity needed a united vote among the American diaspora, and so it was started. But it wasn't started as a membership organization, as much as a group of professional Lebanese Americans. And this goes back three and four generations who felt that they needed to talk to the U.S. government, members of Congress, policymaking community on behalf of Lebanon. 
And that's where it started. And since then, Peter Tannis uh, was the chairman of the original organization. Tom Nassif was the president. Tanya Rayall was the executive director. It then moved to uh, George Cody and Deep Kimi as the administrative staff. And now uh, Edward Gabriel, former U.S. ambassador to Morocco, also actively involved in the Democratic Club, is uh, the president. And he has been for the last five years because of his insights as a diplomat, having been an ambassador, and because of his close ties to the Biden administration, he has been able to move the needle in terms of U.S.-Lebanon relationships. I'm talking in terms of economic assistance, in terms of assistance to the LAF, in terms of actually getting time for Lebanon in this world right now that is full of tension, full of obstruction, and full of declining liberality in terms of how governments are, are governed, how people are governed. And so it's been important for ATFL to stand for a united Lebanon, a sovereign Lebanon, an independent Lebanon, a Lebanon that rises above its confessional distinctions and really try to unify and act in the interests of Lebanon, not particular sects. And by, while we're at it, Ray, you can call me Jean because that's really how my name is pronounced. This French Lebanese. And I'm sorry, but you know what? Um, I'm uh, raised American, so my English is completely distorted, okay? We've lost well, everything. Here. Life, I've, been, I've been called Jean because that's the way it's spelled. Right. But as I say to people, yeah, they only they make that mistake once because then I go, John Ebenezer, Vice President of the American Task Force on on, uh, Lebanon. So the ATFL has been, especially I'd say over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, and uh, Ed Gabriel is a great guy who's been on our show before. Uh, I love talking with him and uh, members of the ATFL. Um, You've been a strong voice, I know, uh, um, to educate and inform members of Congress, the White House, the State Department. Uh, how are things? I, I'm curious as to how things are today under Biden in uh, in comparison to how things were in terms of advocating for Lebanon and not so much the politics, but was it easier under is it easier under Biden than it was under Trump? Was it easier before that, you know, under Obama, the Clintons, George H.W. Bush? When When was really the Lebanese voice? When did it really have influence or is that just right now? No, I think it started under Bush 41, then Bush 43, as we refer to them here. Uh, They were willing to listen to Lebanon uh, because they needed to have an anchor in the Middle East. And Jordan was there, Lebanon was the other one. And Syria, the conflicts in Syria became a real obstacle to good U.S. relations in the region. But let's be frank. The United States has not really been smart about the Middle East in terms of their politics. Right. Um, They've been trying to pivot out of the region uh, since Obama. Uh, The relationships with the Lebanese and other Arab groups have have been hard won. And they usually saw Lebanon through an Iranian lens or an Israeli lens and not Lebanon for itself. And that's really what we've been fighting together over the past 20 years is a Lebanese policy that's built on U.S.-Lebanon interests and not Lebanon being seen as something affected by the Iran negotiations or by Israel's security. And now we have the same kind of problem in a sense that because of Iran and Iran's influence through Hezbollah, that many members of Congress, 
less than 50, but enough for them to make a noise, continue to say, why are we bothering with Lebanon? It's just run by Hezbollah on behalf of Iran. So we've had to show them time and time and time again that Lebanon has been a very good partner for the United States. And, and I know that that uh, uh, dynamic existence with uh, Syria, the influence that Syria had on Lebanon for so many years um, that suddenly broke um, and kind of gave Lebanon the opportunity just to stand by itself. But it was such a brutal break. You know, the involvement, I think that Lebanon offered kind of a counterbalance to what Syria was. And I'm not talking about the Syrian people. You know, we're talking about the Syrian government there, the dictatorship. Uh, that continues there, although now Syria is divided into regions of different uh, controlling uh, foreign powers, the Turks, the U.S., the West, um, It's really and Russia uh, around the regime over there. Does Lebanon still have that problem with Syria the way it did? Um, is, is Syria looming over um, Lebanon at all? And uh, before we get into the elections and everything like that, is it still a an area of uh, concern for the Lebanese? That's a really good question, Ray. Yes, Syria has never really left Lebanon. Yes, their troops withdrew, but they have very strong supporters in the northeast of Lebanon in particular, Uh, very strong in the Sunni community, as you would imagine. Uh, President Assad has very close ties to several politicians in Lebanon. And so there's always been this uh, tension between should I do it for Lebanon or should I check with Assad first? That's diminished uh, because literally Hezbollah and the Russians saved the Assad regime. And so his influence has primarily been channeled through Assad and other pro-Syrian regime supporters. But yes, there's still a difficult challenge for Lebanon because they have strong political influence in the country. Now, I know that... uh, um, that one of the big events, probably, I mean, there's so many big events, the explosion that took the life of the former prime minister, um, Hariri, uh, um, that explosion then, uh, and I remember going to Lebanon twice. What a beautiful country. I love that place. Not just the food, but the people. When I talk to people on, it doesn't matter what their politics, you know, it always seems that the people genuinely are good people in Lebanon. Um, when you get away from the politics, but, uh, um, I, I saw the crater that was in front of that hotel and it really it was disturbing that politics could be so easily influenced by a by an explosion, a deadly explosion like that that changed the government at the time. Um, and then again, we have August 2nd, 2020, I believe it was when the port explosion took place with that ammonium nitrate stock that was there just a huge amount. Everybody knows that's what people have used for bomb making that's what they use at the murrah federal building uh that's what they use the first time they attacked the uh twin towers uh i think it was in 95 um there are 98 i can't remember the exact time the dates and calendars but that what was there was always a cornerstone of violence um and i don't know if people knew it was there until it exploded and killed so so many people injured so many and made so many homeless has that ever been it hasn't been resolved has it no and that was the point you raised that i thought was really critical it's never been fully investigated and on top of that there have been several forensic studies that have come out by germany and france and others 
that said that actually the 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate were not in there. There were almost, the explosion actually was about 500 tons. Uh, so there's, so the question is, where'd the other 2,200 tons go? Wow. And one speculation is, and you know our countries over there are full of conspiracy theories, is that Hezbollah was using it as uh, bomb materials for the Assad regime. And in fact, that was the stuff in the barrel bombs, was the ammonium nitrate. We don't know the answer, and maybe under this, if we get a new government in Lebanon, the investigation will go forward. But as of now, we still don't know. Two of the ministers who were called in the, in the investigation have been re-elected to parliament. This shows you how this has become uh, almost a byproduct of the power politics in Lebanon. There's no full investigation in Lebanon of, the, of that bombing. Uh, it's a shame that there's no free judiciary in Lebanon anymore. It has become, in many ways, like other Arab countries, in a sense that the judiciary can act when they're permitted to act, as opposed to how they should act. Yeah, and, and I know that there were, it seemed like they were getting close. It seemed like the judiciary was going to be very independent. There was some hope that that investigation would go through. But Hezbollah, uh, and not Hezbollah alone, Hezbollah with partners, controlled the government i think they had just enough seats over the 64 you know half of the 128 seats in parliament to pick the leaders uh to control policy to influence things i think isn't that the hope that this election on may 15th brings that maybe there's going to be a change now where hezbollah doesn't have i mean they only had 13 seats but in their with their coalition, they had a huge voice because they were the military arm of this uh, independent of the government and the official military. But I think that's isn't that what May 15th, the election symbolized now this hope that there's going to be a change and maybe a new direction. So many of the opposition in the election were articulate, vocal opponents to Hezbollah. The Lebanese forces, which is now the number one Christian party, a number of independents, a number of people who were former MPs who resigned and then ran again. So there are some real vocal point opponents to Hezbollah's militia role. Uh, that doesn't mean they don't want Hezbollah to be there, but Hezbollah's got an acceptor role as a political force, as a political party, and not insist that its militia be called into action every time they don't agree with the with the government's uh, opinion on something, which, which way the government's moving. Uh, it doesn't actually have to use it, but it, you know, just taking over the downtown like they did in 2008, which resulted in the Do Doha agreement, which let, gave them even more importance in running the country from their niche. Uh, all of that has fed into a lot of dissatisfaction uh, with the rulers in Lebanon. And that's why I think we had uh, such a reaction because some people saw this as a referendum on a Hezbollah, whereas others saw it as a referendum on the traditional leaders in Lebanon who have allowed the port bombing, who have allowed all of these illegal acts to go on with no recourse in the justice system. It sounds like Lebanon, when I look over uh, the stories and everything, there are like six major parties. There are three Christian parties, uh, three Muslim parties, 
half the seats are Christian, half the seats are Muslim. Um, and then there's a mix between the different parties um, with Hezbollah, I think, teaming up with uh, Amal and the future movement, if I'm not mistaken. What, without that support, though, you know, the big fear is that when Hezbollah doesn't have the power, they, use, they turn to violence. And we see an increase in violence, the explosions, the assassinations. Um, you know, it, it just it, are, is there some fear that Hezbollah not being in control will lead to that type of period again? Um, I hope they don't. But is there a fear that that could be a direction where politics and the country is headed? There is that fear. And the fear is how do we set up a government that can function that isn't a provocation to Hezbollah? And that's a real challenge. Because the Lebanese forces now, the largest Christian party that will form an anti-Hezbollah coalition, has to do it on more than anti-grounds. They have to be pro-something. You know, and that's that's my concern, is that the Lebanese forces will see their votes as a mandate to be aggressive and antagonistic toward Hezbollah. That shouldn't be the target. The target should be independent judiciary, complete the investigations, fix the economy, put money back in people's pockets, and just and diminish corruption. That's what the challenge should be, because that's what the people are tired of. Hezbollah will gradually lose its attraction as it loses its raison d'etre, which is to protect Lebanon against Israel. It has no, There's no real role there. Uh, yes, once upon a time, they did uh, beat the Israelis in the war in 2000. Six, but that wasn't a real war. I mean, it was a ugly mess. But at the same time, the people who paid the price were the Lebanese, and you know that that's the other thing Hezbollah has to decide: are they Lebanese or are they a force for Iran? That's a big, big issue, and I think that drives people more than the militia. That is, are you with us, as fellow Lebanese, or are you proxies for another government? Uh, just to remind our listeners out there, uh, we are talking with Jean Abinader, the vice president for policy at the American Task Force on Lebanon. Um, and uh, the ATFL is probably the voice in the United States when you want to know what's happening in Lebanon, that members of Congress, I've talked to several this past week, they all point to your organization. If you want to understand the election, you guys are the source here in the U.S. to understand it. And uh, Jean uh, is helping us look back on some of the basics of Lebanon, what's happened over the past uh, decade and uh, this uh, election that just took place May 15th. Tell us, uh, can you give us a breakdown on what exactly happened? Um, who was it that lost on the Hezbollah coalition side that now, because the news headlines are saying Hezbollah lost. Hezbollah had the same number of seats. Hezbollah did lose their coalition loss, but tell explain that to us because it given that's the, really critical. Yeah. That's really critical, Ray, for people to understand is that Hezbollah hasn't lost; its coalition lost. And who lost? Like excellent question that you asked. One is Free Patriotic Movement, which is the President Michel Aoun's party now run by Gibran Basile. They lost seats. And the biggest losers, of course, were the Sunnis because they didn't contest the election. A number of Sunni candidates won, which was great. 
some pro-Syrian candidates lost, some uh, uh, outliers who aren't uh, members of any coalition uh, also lost. So what you have is Amal Hezbollah, the colonel of their 27 seats is intact. So they will look to Murata, uh, they will look other organizations to join with them in a coalition. But regardless of what happens, if, and this is a big if, if Lebanese, if Lebanese forces can pull together with the Druze, can pick up with the independents and the anti-traditional uh, leaders, they will have a slim majority in parliament. And uh, it's not adequate to say that there is a coalition because there isn't. It's gonna be shifting all the time. We have to remember that Lebanese forces was part of the traditional power broken in Lebanon. They had a receipt at the table. They were getting jobs. They were getting money from the government for projects. They were getting all the kickbacks that they could from their actions in government. But they worked. They worked hard to maintain their core. And so they are a, definitely a force. But as traditional politicians, like the Druzar who were elected, and some of the Sunni figures, they're still going to be looking for, what do I get out of it? What is it that, that my being in parliament will give to me so that I can keep my constituency in check by still doling out jobs and opportunities they might not otherwise have? So it's going to be a real fracas to see what kinds of coalitions emerge. I think now coalitions will be more issue-based than they were in the past. Before there was... Hezbollah, Amal, and others as the paramount coalition of the March 8th. Now we're going to see what pieces uh, will aggregate around the Lebanese forces and the opposition figures to create new coalitions. But I think they'll change uh, issue to issue. Well, we're going to take a break in a minute, but I want to ask you, are, and I know we always say we're optimistic, but are you really optimistic moving forward, or is it still a time of uncertainty to see what happens? The latter, it's definitely a time of uncertainty. And the, we work with really good people. That's one of the reasons why we're getting much better at what we do. We work with the Middle East Institute. We work with other organizations who are really good at the grassroots of what's going on in Lebanon. They help enrich us and give us more and more information so that we can make good recommendations to the US policymakers. Uh, and so we think that we're getting a handle on it. But in the next week or two, a number of people will be going to Lebanon to find out firsthand what has changed and what we can look forward to in terms of the days ahead. All right, on with me on the radio, and he's been very gracious. Uh, he was going to do the segment too, but when I lost my guest, he was kind enough to come on early and uh, help us. And honestly, uh, one hour is still not enough John, to understand a complex topic like Lebanon and what's happening. But um, I think it's going to help us go a long way to give people the basics on some of the issues that we're facing. Our guest is Jean Abinader, the vice president for policy at the American Task Force on Lebanon. Um, we're going to take a break in a minute. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about the May 15th elections in Lebanon. Um, I also want to give a plug for our show next week. We're going to look at the USS Liberty, 
uh, which on June 8th, 1967, was off the coast of Egypt near Israel during the Six-Day War, been raging on for three days, when the Israeli uh, military attacked the ship for 90 minutes, killing 34 American soldiers, wounding, I think it was 121, I don't have the numbers in front of me, um, and disabling the ship, not destroying it, but disabling it. Um, and I'll have four of the survivors of that ship who were there when it was attacked, sharing their memories on the 55th anniversary of that attack, which they believe has never been fully investigated. It should be an interesting show next week, so I hope you'll join me. Right now, we're going to take a quick break here at the Ray Hanania Show. And when we come back, we'll continue our discussion on the future of Lebanon, the elections in Lebanon, May 15th, what they mean, what they could mean. Uh, we'll also talk about uh, what uh, is the what should the U.S. administration do? Um, what should President Biden do? And the impact that uh, Hezbollah, Iran and Syria still have on that beautiful country that I hope one day returns to the beauty that it was so many years ago. Um, and uh, reasserts itself in a very positive way. I'm Ray Hanania. We're going to take a quick break. We will be right back right after these messages. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Imagine you're on a train track. Somewhere miles away, a train is headed your way. You can't see it yet, but it's coming. Slowly but surely. If you have prediabetes or you're at risk for type 2 diabetes, you may be on the wrong track, and diabetes could be heading your way. Bit by bit, the danger is getting closer and closer. So should you stay on the track you're on now or move to make a change and reduce your risk? If you have prediabetes or you're at risk for type 2 diabetes, you may qualify for the National Diabetes Prevention Program in your local community. This one-year program could be the ongoing support you need to put you on the right track. Not only did participants lose weight, they cut their risk of type 2 diabetes in half. Ready to get on board for a healthier future? Learn more about the National Diabetes Prevention Program and what else you can do to manage and prevent diabetes at michigan.gov diabetes. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. بعد تطعيم أكثر من ثلاثة بلايين شخص حول العالم بشكل كامل بلقاح كوفيد 19 تمت الآن الموافقة على تلقيح الأطفال من عمر 5 إلى 11 سنة فقد أثبتت الدراسات بعد تجارب سريرية مع أطفال حول العالم أن جرعتي اللقاح المخصصة لهم آمنة وفعالة يوصي الأطباء بتلقيح الأطفال من سن الخامسة فما فوق من أجل حماية الأصحاء منهم أو ذوي الظروف الصحية الصعبة الطفل جزء من المجتمع وهو معرض لأن يصاب بالفيروس ويمكن أن يحمله لعائلته ولمن حوله احمي طفلك وعائلتك ومجتمعك لقح طفلك ليكون بأمان في المدرسة أو مع العائلة والأصدقاء وأثناء ممارسة الرياضة تحدث لطبيبك واكتشف الحقائق بنفسك أو زر موقع michigan.gov/kids-covid-vaccine رسالة من وزارة الصحة والخدمات الإنسانية في ميشيغان 
In a perfect world, everyone would be a perfect driver. Hands at nine and three, everyone. Nine and three. Everyone would follow all the rules. Please, go ahead and merge. I'll make room. Thank you, fellow driver. And nothing unexpected would ever happen. Even the squirrels would know the right time to safely cross the road. In this perfect world, you wouldn't have to wear a seatbelt. But in case you hadn't noticed, we don't live in a perfect world. About a thousand people in Michigan die each year in vehicle crashes, and thousands more are injured. Wearing your seatbelt reduces your risk of death in a crash by 45% in a car and by 60% in a pickup truck. So until we find a perfect world to drive in, make our imperfect world safer by buckling up. A message from the Michigan Office of Highway Safety Planning. Are your hands feeling numb? Do you feel pain opening up a jar, turning a key? Are you noticing that your elbow and your shoulder are becoming stiff? Or were you recently injured in your arm? Hello, I'm Dr. Albajit Katranji, and at the Katranji Hand Center, which just recently opened down the street from the Somerset Mall, we can provide you with the latest in hand, wrist, elbow, and shoulder care. Visit us at www.katranjihandcenter.com to learn the latest techniques that we have to offer you, and I look forward to taking care of you. Visit us in Troy at 1565 West Big Beaver Road, Building F, or call Katranji Hand Center for an appointment at 248-869-4263. That's 248-869-4263. The Ray Hanania Show is brought to you by the U.S. Arab Radio Network and sponsored by Arab News Newspaper, the Middle East's leading English language publication with print and online editions in Saudi Arabia, Dubai, France, Japan, Pakistan, England, and the United States. Listen to live radio every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern in Detroit, Washington, D.C., New York, and Ontario, Canada. Or watch the live broadcast on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. The Ray Hanania Show is rebroadcast in Chicago at 12 noon on Thursday. For more information on the radio stations, live Facebook broadcast, and podcasts, visit ArabNews.com. And now, here's your host, columnist and U.S. Special Correspondent for Arab News, Ray Hanania. And welcome back. Uh, with me, of course, uh, this afternoon is Jean Abinader, the Vice President for Policy at the American Task Force on Lebanon. He has decades of experience in public affairs, advocacy, international marketing, education, training, and project management in the Arab world. He regularly contributes analysis in a weekly blog post uh, hosted by ATFL on current events in Lebanon and the region. And you can go there, I think, to read those posts at atfl.org. That's www.atfl.org. And on his website at abinaderadvisoryservices.com, A-B-I-N-A-D-E-R, advisoryservices.com. John, uh, thank you so much for hanging with us some more. Uh, the question I wanted to ask you was, what should the U.S. and the President uh, and Biden's administration be doing to help Lebanon? This seems like an opportunity. And should are we doing enough? Should we be doing something? Or is, do, should we sit back and wait to see how it all uh, pans out? That's a really good question, Ray. And I, it's a tough one that we struggle with all the time because on the one hand, we're grateful that in this world where there's the Ukraine and Russia going on, where there's 
China going on, where there's immigration on the southern borders going on, that the administration has given time to help Lebanon. Uh, the Congress has increased the amount of humanitarian assistance to Lebanon. It's increased the amount of assistance to the LAF. It has uh, made very strong indications of what the United States would like Lebanon to do, for example, vis-a-vis -vis the elections, in terms of uh, free, fair, and on time, which helped a lot. Uh, it's, helped, uh, the, it's helped Lebanon through the World Bank in terms of allowing Lebanon to receive certain loans, for example, to subsidize wheat. Um, so I think the United States is doing a lot. Can it do more? Well, we always think it should. For example, I, as I mentioned earlier, we need to decouple U.S.-Lebanon policy from U.S.-Iran policy. That's important. Number two, we have to, I think, make a much stronger case to the Lebanese people of what the U.S. is doing for Lebanon. Under the Trump administration, the whole notion of soft diplomacy was gutted in a sense that a lot of people don't even know what the United States does for their countries in terms of food aid or in terms of medical assistance. Or for example, in Lebanon, we support the American University of Beirut. We support Lebanese American University. We support other schools throughout the country. We support population growth and health in terms of small business development. There's a lot the United States do does that the Lebanese don't know about because the United States is so poor at selling its programs. But you raise another question, Ray, which I, I'm struggling with. In the United States, by the time the elections are over, because of our exit polling, we have so much data that we can slice and dice about the election. This is not available in Lebanon. In fact, the numbers have gone down. In 2008, there's about 49% participation. And this year, in 2022, we have 41% participation. But we don't know who they are. We don't, know, we don't know the demographics of the voters. Are they young? Are they old? Are they middle-aged? Are they employed? Are they unemployed? Are they? What does the diaspora voting look like? Are they uh, people who have left in the last five years, the last two years, who have been in the country for a couple of generations? So without that information, our ability as the United States or Lebanon's ability to reach out to its people who care about the country, people who voted for the country, even if they're in Australia or Abu Dhabi or in New Zealand. There has to be a, a better understanding of who wants Lebanon to succeed because those people have shown by voting that they're activists, that they're advocates, that they want the relationship to be better. And I have to tell you, it's because of people like you and people in the Detroit area who have worked with the Arab American Democratic Organization. <clears throat> uh, the, the, it's really important that the Biden administration hear from our community, and I don't just mean Lebanese Americans, I mean the Arab Americans, that they hear that we are active, that we vote for candidates, that we work on candidates' behalf, that we want a Congress that is responsive to the issues that we have in the Middle East. And I think that's where the work that you and others are doing is so important because it reminds people that because we're Arab Americans or Lebanese Americans or Palestinian Americans, doesn't mean we don't have a sense of commitment to our heritage, to our legacy. I mean, I'm only second generation. My parents came from Lebanon, but I try to go back every year to see my family, which is quite a few of them are still there. 
and they enrich my appreciation of the country, not just the cultural side. I mean, I, I can make kibbe and fatayat and all that stuff myself, but they really enrich me from the, here I am in the village, this is where my father's house was, this is where my mother grew up, this is what your cousins are doing, this is the problems we're having with drawing money from the bank to pay the tuition. We need to have those kinds of connections. And those connections will really help us in our messages to the administration and our messages to the Congress. But we can't ignore the fact that as overseas Lebanese or overseas Palestinians, we have a role to play. It may be a small role, just signing a petition or making or doing memorial service, for example, over this past week. There's so much we can do to keep people understanding how, even though we're Americans and really committed to this country, we're committed to this country because we know what can happen if we don't keep our eye on the ball, if we don't keep our country focused on democracy, on individual rights, on human rights. Uh, and that's really important, and that's key. And so we were hoping that the, the diaspora turnout, which was over 60% in some places, would really uh, encourage the people in Lebanon to come out in bigger numbers. But we don't know. They say the numbers are down at 41%. Well, how much is that in raw numbers versus 49%? Well, how much is that in raw numbers? Because 41% of a half million is higher than 49% of a quarter million. But we don't know that yet. I'm not sure we'll ever find that out. Uh, but that's really important that we get to the demographics. Is that because they don't collect the data, you know, during the voting the way they do here in the U.S.? Um, you know, have that voting... It's a very sophisticated process, I think, here in the U.S. Is it not as detailed when they uh, have the elections in Lebanon? If the Ministry of Interior wanted to, and I don't know if they will or won't, that's, I can't make that determination, um, they have the data. In other words, when people register and show their identity card, their gender, the place they're com coming from, and their age is all there. For example, in Lebanon, one of the obstacles to voting, Ray, I don't know if you knew this, but you have to go to your ancestral village to vote. In other words, I'm, if I'm living in Beirut, and they say, oh, no, you have to go to X to oh. vote because it's where your are from. I, I, my response is, well, it did work very well for Jesus. I'd expect to work for the rest of us, you know? And that's what people don't understand is there are built-in obstacles to liberalizing the voting to enable more and more people to vote. And those limitations to voting have to be overcome in the next parliament. All right, well, we can take a few. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say one thing. Uh, go ahead. What is the agenda for the new parliament going to be? Remember, I mentioned about these shifting coalitions. Uh, they've got to get an IMF reform package really quickly to get it back on its feet financially. So the question is, what's the coalition around banking reform? What's the coalition on a reform of the uh, electricity sector? What's the coalition around fighting corruption or judicial reform? That's really what's going to be the test of whether or not this new parliament has any teeth or it's going to be dysfunctional. How long do you think before we'll actually see something along those lines on those topics, those coalition issues? Now they've got to elect a Speaker of the House. They've got to have a Council of Ministers. They've got to have a new Prime Minister. They have to have a new president. All of that should, in theory, happen between now and the end of October. All right, we're, we can take some. We can take some phone calls at two four eight 
557-3800. Questions only, all right? So let's go to Detroit. Uh, Jerry is on the line. Jerry, you're on with John Abinader of the American Task Force on Lebanon. Thank you for calling, Jerry. Thank you, Mr. Ray Hanania, for taking my call. And uh, uh, I say hello to your uh, distinguished guest, Mr. John Abu Nader. Mr. John Abu Nader, uh, uh, Najib Habba from Detroit, Michigan, my question is, all the previous American government, and especially the former uh, President of the United States, uh, Donald Trump, uh, they all uh, treat Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. And Mr. Abinader, as you know, uh, right now there is an election in Lebanon, national election, and Hezbollah, he shares uh, a big part of uh, this election. My question uh, to you, Mr. Abi Nader, uh, do you think the United States under the new president, uh, John uh, Biden, Joe Biden, could uh, change this dialogue and open a talk and uh, lift the terrorist uh, list from Hezbollah? I would love to hear your answer, and thank you, Mr. Abi Nader, and thank you to you, Mr. Rehanania. Gary, thank you so much for that question. Najib, thank you. That was important. I, I think I said earlier that no government's going to work that goes in as an anti-Hezbollah government. Hezbollah provides social services, provides banking services, provides food. It is doing the job the Lebanese government should do. So if the Biden administration wants to move Hezbollah on a, on a path that is less toward destruction and more positive, they should help the Lebanese government recover and carry out the functions it's supposed to recover. It should help them combat corruption. It should find out who's taking the money and get it back. It should make the banking sector work on behalf of the people. There are lots of things the United States government, in working with its allies, I mean, they should work with the Europeans and others to come to a recipe of how Lebanon uh, can move forward with the help of the international community. The only way Hezbollah is going to lose its military emphasis is for there to be peace with Israel, if there has to be a peace in the country, in a sense that people don't have to worry about where their food's coming from, where their job is, or anything. Hezbollah grew out of Israel's aggression toward Lebanon. So if you reduce that aggression, and at the same time, you complement what needs to go on from an economic and social point of view, then people are going to act normally and not think that violence is the option. So if Hezbollah were to refocus itself uh, on providing those services that, in all honesty, it was very good at doing, which created the base you know, from which they built their power um, and get away from this... Uh, being like the satellite puppet of Iran or even Syria, uh, the role, the political role and governmental role could strengthen and maybe the U.S. attitude towards it could ease. But that would mean that, like, you know, when we were talking about earlier, this fear that I have this deep down, I have this fear that every time Lebanon goes one step forward, it takes two steps back because of violence and because people uh, who lose power or feel that they're going to lose power turn to violence to be disruptive and to take good leaders out. Um, so it's 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 a scary you know future I think a little bit. 
Najib, I want to be frank with you. You can't explain to me how Lebanon became a better country because Hezbollah went in and saved Assad. See, so military solutions do not make Lebanon stronger. Right. What makes Lebanon stronger is addressing the needs of the people, not the needs of Iran and Syria through Lebanon. Lebanon will always be as weak as Hezbollah is strong working for Syria and Iran and not for the Lebanese people. That's really the influence of uh, 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 Iran and Syria that needs to be pushed aside so Lebanon can focus and maybe Hezbollah would become a better part of that uh, process. Our number is 248-557-3300. If anybody wants to ask a question, um, we'd be happy to take those calls. Um, so Biden, I think what you're saying, uh, John, is that uh, the U.S. needs to give Lebanon more support. They, they need to really kind of step up, take advantage of this election. It, whatever the results about Hezbollah, the perception is this is a change. It's different from what's been taking place over the last four years. Let's do something with it. I hope they do that. I do. I mean, I do, too. I mean, there are things that can do. For example, Sheba Farms. Sheba Farms is uh, Syrian. And as long as it's treated as part of Lebanon, it supports the rationale that there should be uh, a military solution with Israel. Let's be frank. Syria tomorrow could overrun the United States. I mean, overrun Lebanon. Israel tomorrow could overrun Lebanon. So what's the LAF's job? Are they just a police force? Well, maybe they'd be better off, but they can't even do that job. They can't stop the smuggling on the border. Why? Because the Lebanese and Syrians who control it are tied into the power system. So let's be frank here. I mean, Lebanon needs to change the way it's been doing business. It, can, it needs to move away from corruption. It needs to move away from provocative actions, whether it's toward anyone in the in the region. Lebanon is not going to survive on its own. It needs to have good relations with the countries in the region, with the countries in the Gulf, and with the countries in Europe and the United States. So maybe they need to strengthen the Lebanese armed forces then, the LAF. They're, they need to be given more. I mean, nobody, I and again, maybe I'm wrong, but... A lot of people don't look at the LAF as the main military force of Lebanon. They always, you know, they always talk about Hezbollah because of the regional influence they have. Um, but isn't that part of the problem that the LAF doesn't have that uh, uh, support and perception that it should have? It should have that perception because it has been very effective in terms of counterterrorism. It has been effective in terms of closing down smuggling when it's allowed to. You know, we spend generations here in the United States trying to inculcate in the LAF leadership respect for civilian government control. Civilians give directions to the military. It's the way it is here in our country. Well, what happens when the civilians give the military poor directions or no directions? See, then that's the burden the LAF has. They don't need more weapons. They're not going to engage in a war. They're defensive uh, against the counter-terrorists primarily to counter-terrorism. So what they need is the freedom and the direction to work under civilian leadership that is pro-Lebanon and not pro-neutrality or whatever it is. I mean, that's how, the best way to ensure Lebanon's neutrality, as the patriarch has called for, 
is to make sure it is the LAF sovereign. And that's what the agreements have all been signed, whether it's a Taif agreement or the Doha agreement. Lebanon's army should be sovereign in the country to protect Lebanese sovereignty. And so how do you do that? Well, you reduce the provocations to other organizations so they reduce their militaristic uh, forces. I mean, the LA, we do not want the Lebanese forces, for example, now they're the primary Christian party to turn back into a militia, which is what they came from. And the only way to do that is to have an effective government. And that's what I'm concerned about is there's so many things that have to be done in the next six months that they'll make it almost impossible for there to have real stability and security in the country. So we, we should kind of get a sense maybe in the next six months whether this movement is going to be positive or whether we're going to be just uh, seeing Lebanon uh, take steps backwards. So we had the election May 15th for the parliament. What What's next in terms of, isn't there another, is it an election or is it the coalition building of a dominant uh, coalition to run the parliament and then select a president or are there separate elections for president in Lebanon? All the elections go through parliament, except the municipal elections. They're coming up soon too. And those will be important to watch and see how the, particularly the major cities and regions self-govern. Uh, with regard to the next steps, the next steps are elect a speaker of the house. In other words, is Nabia Bere gonna be, uh, re resume his position as speaker of the parliament, as president, or is someone else gonna come in? Well, there are different coalitions that are gonna form for that. And so he'll be vying with members of the new parliament to see what deals he has to make to stay in power. The other side has to decide one on who their candidate's gonna be, and then they have to figure out what their deals are going to be. And so there's a real uh, issue there on just coming to speaker of the parliament. Once you do that, you can do the council of ministers and prime minister, and then you do the president. So those are the four major pieces that have to be put into place, all of which will take different sets of coalitions in the parliament. Uh, we're going to be Jerry, looking. For, I was going to say we're going to be looking for all of that, but um, maybe is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you wanted to bring up in our final few minutes that we have on radio? Well, the most important thing, I think, whether it's people in Detroit or Los Angeles or Houston or anywhere else, we have to keep providing our counterparts in Lebanon with hope. We have to not let them feel that they're adrift. And I don't care which political faction you're from. Uh, what I want is for the Lebanese to feel at home in their own country. The fact that so many people have had to leave because of economic conditions, the fact that intimidation uh, continued throughout the election, the fact that people are not sure about whether or not they want to stay in Lebanon once they finish their school, if they can even get through their school. That is, you know, should break our hearts. What we really should focus on is how to bring hope back to the country. What do we need to do as individuals, as members of our community, and as citizens to influence U.S. policy toward Lebanon? And the sooner we have a U.S. Lebanon policy that is free as much as it can be from U.S. Iran policy or U.S. Israel policy, then the better we'll be. For example, the oil and gas deals that have been worked on. They're still being held up. The United States is being technocratic about it and bureaucratic about dotting the I's and crossing the T's. 
and and the Lebanon is way behind other countries in the Eastern Mediterranean with regard to gas exploration and gas exploitation. And as long as that happens, the Lebanon can't even take the right steps. The U.S. has to step up and help them because the Lebanon has a, a way to go, but it needs technical support, it needs political support. The United States will do this and their allies. Now, the, I keep talking about the United States, but I really mean the international countries who support Lebanon. They're essential to Lebanon's success and they're willing to help Lebanon. And so we need to continue to focus Lebanon's issues within the U.S. Congress and the policymaking community so that this, in, this interest that we have shown for the last six months in the run-up to the election doesn't dissipate. They were able to continue to help Lebanon through the food crises, through the stability issues, through uh, the brain drain that's going on, so that the, the country can come back to a normal path of countries and feel that it's part of the world of nations and not an, an outlier. All right. Our guest, John Abbey Nader, the vice president for policy at the American Task Force on Lebanon. The website for the American Task Force on Lebanon is atfl.org. Uh, John writes a blog there where you can get more information about these and other topics that are important to Lebanon at that website at atfl.org or at his website at abbynaderadvisoryservices.com. John, thank you so much for uh, joining us and uh, uh, helping us uh, provide. Really, I'm, I'm actually glad we actually had an hour to discuss Lebanon because 30 minutes would have just been I would have been rushing through everything, and I, I really thought we did a good job of exploring everything. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank I want you, to thank it's been a uh, you're welcome. And I want to thank everybody for listening. Again, we'll be this will be rebroadcast in Detroit tomorrow morning at seven a.m. and again in Chicago tomorrow at twelve noon on ten eighty a.m. I want to thank everybody for listening. Remember, next week we'll be looking at the 55th anniversary of the USS Liberty, the Israeli attack on the USS Liberty with four American military veteran survivors uh, who survived that attack. They're going to share their stories with us. And the following week, well, very important, Lebanese-American, uh, Tony Breidinger, who is a NASCAR racer um, and the Daytona 500. She's going to join us along with Sean Caston, the congressman from Illinois, the week after that on June 1st. John, thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We'll talk to everybody next week. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye.